Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. As the debate in San Francisco and across California has shown this past couple years, it's very difficult to agree on a reparations plan for harms committed in the name of the state. But remarkably, the state did pass a plan for reparations for a small, specific group of people, women who underwent forced sterilization while incarcerated. Advocates estimated perhaps 600 people would be eligible, but with the December 31st deadline to apply approaching, only a few people have actually received money. Something has gone wrong in the implementation of the program. We'll explore why it's fallen short of expectations and what that might tell us about how to design more expansive reparations plans. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We want to begin today's show with what happened. From the early 20th century all the way into the 2000s, tens of thousands of people were sterilized without their informed consent. These procedures had their roots in the racist eugenics policies of the early 20th century, but they continued long after eugenics became a discredited science and tragic part of American history. We're joined first by Moonlight Pulido, who was one of the people who experienced forced sterilization and who's received compensation under the California Forced or Involuntary Sterilization Compensation Program. Welcome, Moonlight. Hi. How are you today? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. So you were in prison serving a long sentence when you were told that you had some growths in your uterus. What did the doctor kind of tell you about treatment? He told me that I had two growths that had the potential to turn into cancer. Hmm. And that kind of freaked me out because when my son was 12 years old, he had cancer. Hmm. So I had to stop and think to myself, I may be locked up, but I don't want to die in here. Mm-hmm. And so I thought I was signing up for a life-changing procedure. Yeah, some of that saved your life. Yeah. Right, right. And so I thought, because that's all he had discussed, was removing two growth. Mm-hmm. He didn't discuss touching, taking, anything else. Mm-hmm. So what actually happened so, when you got the procedure? Um, the day of the procedure, um, it seemed like everything was kind of held back. They didn't bring me the paperwork to sign until they were already standing there with the, um, the medication to knock me out. Mm-hmm. And so I felt kind of rushed. Yeah. And because he worked for California Department of Corrections, I thought this was an upstanding doctor. Hmm. And on the contrary, hmm. um, I signed the paperwork and um, 
I went into surgery, and when I came out, I when I woke up, I was just puddled in sweat. Hmm. And I thought, okay, that's my body maybe reacting to the anesthesia. Yeah. But it, it continued on for like the next week. And so I was like, no, no, something is wrong. So when I went to my first dressing change, I asked a nurse. I said, excuse me, what was done to me? And she turned around, looked over her shoulder, looked at the paperwork, looked back at me, and she goes, oh, you had a full hysterectomy. And I go, no, no, you have to be mistaken. You're probably looking at the wrong paperwork. She looked back, she said, your number W70658? I go, yeah. She said, no, you had a full hysterectomy. And I really wanted to say something to her, but it wasn't her fault. She was just doing right. the dressing change. Just she didn't do surgery. Right. So how'd you so, process that? Like, you know, not expecting that to happen. You come out, you find out that's happened. Like, can is there even someone you can go to to be like, what happened? Um, I went to the doctor three days after that. And um, I confronted him about it. Mm-hmm. And what he had to say was the most disturbing thing I've ever heard in my life. And verbatim, word for word, when I asked him, I said, what did you do to me, Dr. Heinrich? He got up and he walked over and closed the door because he didn't want anybody to hear what he was going to tell me. And he came back and he sat down. He said, look, he said, I'm tired of you pretty Mexican girls, you pretty native girls, and you pretty black girls. You come up in here, you become a bunch of hot asses, excuse my language. And those were his words. And you come in here, you become a bunch of hot tails, I'll put it that way. Then you go home. You go home and you do the wild thing. You get pregnant again and you come back to prison. And then us taxpayers are forced to have to take care of your children because they end up on welfare. And my mouth was on the floor. I was so in shock. I couldn't, I couldn't even reply. Wow. And um, when I got up and I walked out, I felt so numb. It's like there were, pe- there were people outside playing soccer and catch and stuff in the grass, you know, some of my friends and stuff. And I was just walking along looking at the ground. And um, I'm Native American, and Creator gave us a gift to be able to recreate. We're the only ones that can give life. Women are the only ones. And it was a blessing, and it's a gift. And he stole the gift and a blessing from me that can't be given back. Mm-hmm. So just, I mean, the compensation is cool, and it's a little, I'm sorry, yes, some, something wrong was done to you, but that gift can never be repaid. Yeah. I mean, how did you, given that there's been problems in getting other people kind of signed up and knowing about this program, how did you find out about it? Um, I was reached by Erica Cohen, and I don't know how she found me. Um, I was reached by Erica Cohen, and she said that they had done a documentary called Belly of the Beast, and it's on YouTube. Hmm. And um, then when I got out, I reached out to Erica, mm-hmm. and um, she was like, um, there was a reparations bill just signed, and you need to write the California Victim Compensation Board and get your application, sweetheart. Wow. And I was like, okay. So I did. And I got my application, and um, I filled it out. And I was kind of like, 
unsure if they were going to be able to prove it because it had been so long ago. That was in 2005. Mm-hmm. And so I know the hospital is shut down now. So um, there's a lot of people that they can't get medical records mm-hmm. or, you mm-hmm. know, so they, they're running into barriers. And then, of course, um, the, my belief on this was, okay, he didn't do full hysterectomies on everybody. And for the amount of time that that happened, there's no way you can tell me that palms were not being greased. Mm. People were getting paid off. They had to have been. For it to go on from the early 2000s into like 2013, 20, 2014, yeah. however long that went on. No, people knew about it. They had to have. But then I stopped and I, like, I always think outside the box. And I go, you know what? He threw it off so that he wouldn't get caught sooner because he did so many full hysterectomies and then switched it up. Yeah. Did some ablation and then switched it up and then did some parcels and then went back and started, you know, he mixed it up so that it wouldn't be so many all in row in, in, in one shot. Moonlight, um, thanks so much for for sharing the story. I, it's just, it's a, it's a tragic. I'm sorry that it that it happened. Mm-hmm. I, I want to bring in um, some other voices that are going to help us kind of contextualize what happened to you. And you know, Sydney Johnson is a reporter with KQED News. who has been reporting on this in this program. Um, thanks for joining us, Sydney. Yeah, thanks. And we also have Jennifer James, who's a uh, uh, PhD associate professor uh, in the Institute for Health and Aging at the University of California, San Francisco, also a member of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners and has assisted for sterilization survivors with their applications for reparations. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sydney's Moonlight's story, you know, it's specifically hers. It's her, her own experience. But does her story sort of... <clears throat> ring true with the other people? Does it like so resonate with the other people that you've been able to to interview over time? Yeah. And I actually spoke to Moonlight. Moonlight, it's it's nice to hear you on this show. Um, But I spoke to several other uh, women and and non-binary folks um, who were affected by this as well. And um, it's tragic to say, but but Moonlight's experience is is not isolated. Um, Another woman that I spoke to uh, featured in, in one of the stories that we had as part of this reporting package. Uh, her name is Leisha Gooseberry. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was incarcerated at the Central California Women's Facility. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she was 38, a doctor at the facility told her that she had fibroid tumors and that she would need to get a partial hysterectomy to get those removed. Years after uh, and, and after, actually, she was released from prison, mm-hmm. she went to see a new primary care doctor. And there, at that appointment, she found out that she had been given a full hysterectomy, oh, which is a, a different procedure. Um, and, you know, she just told me that she felt quite literally gutted and, uh, you know, manipulated and, and violated and um, had no idea, actually, that this was something that had happened to other people as well um, until uh, the coalition and, and some other advocates, um, uh, you know, brought this up to her. And, and she's actually very active now and, and helping other people apply for uh, applications and, and is getting the word out, too, just by sharing her story. Um, but it's it's definitely Definitely something that other people have had experience yeah. with. Yeah. Um, Want to know too that Moonlight's application was approved under this reparations program. Um, Jennifer James, 
how did this happen so what seems to be kind of systematically through time, like where it's the roots of this kind of procedure and this kind of, I mean, you don't want to call it healthcare, but. Right. Okay. <laughs> I know it's, it's awful. I mean, I think you, I think you mentioned briefly, California has a long history of forcibly sterilizing people who are institutionalized. So in the 20th century, eugenics as an ideology, as a science was very popular in the U.S. More than 30 states had compulsory sterilization laws where it was legal to sterilize patients, often in, in institutions for all sorts of reasons, um, without their consent. So California had the most far-reaching of these programs. More than 20,000 people were sterilized in our state under uh, the our eugenics law, which was ne- wasn't repealed until 1979. So this oh, is yeah. really quite recent. Um, but it, you know, it didn't come to light until 2013 that this practice never stopped in California and was continuing in our state prisons um, and likely our jails, too, though the prisons is what's gotten more attention. Um, there was some tremendous reporting in 2013. Uh, Center for Investigative uh, Reporting uh, came out with a report indicating that 144 women had a tubal ligation without proper informed consent, which was a procedure that wasn't supposed to be happening at all at the time. The state said they were not doing those procedures in prisons. Um, and the state did an audit, corroborated those findings, and identified just in a it, between 2005 and 2012 that at least 794 people had some kind of sterilizing procedure. And much like what happened to Moonlight and Talisha, we don't know how many of those were medically necessary, had proper informed consent or not. And we know that many occurred with a doctor who had clearly malicious intent. Hmm. We're talking about why... California's program to provide reparations for forced sterilization has fallen short of expectations. We've been joined by Moonlight Pulido, recipient of the California Forester and Voluntary Sterilization Compensation Program. Uh, Also joined by Sydney Johnson, reporter here at KQED and UCSF's Jennifer James, who's worked uh, with forced sterilization survivors. Going to get into more experiences and uh, more difficulties with the program when we come back from the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about forced sterilizations that happened inside California prisons and a program that was meant to provide reparations for people who experienced that. We're joined by Jennifer James, Associate Professor in the Institute for Health and Aging at the University of California, San Francisco. Sydney Johnson, a reporter with KQED News. I want to add another voice to our conversation. Kayla Mihalovich is a UC Berkeley journalism student in the investigative reporting program. 
She has a new story up that's about this California reparations program. It's on KQED now. Welcome to the show, Kayla. Thank you for having me. Jennifer, I wanted to have, how did this particular injustice come to be addressed? We're going to get into the problems, but how did, we, how did this policy get passed, which seemed like quite a, quite a victory? Yeah, tremendous, tremendous advocacy. Uh, there was a broad coalition of folks who worked for many years. This program failed, I think, three times to get passed before it finally mm. passed the legislature and was signed by the governor uh, just over two years ago. Um, and folks from California Latinas for Reproductive Justice, DREDF, which is the Disability Rights Education Defense Fund, California Coalition for Women Prisoners, Justice Now, um, came together to sort of bridge the California eugenics program from 1909 to 1979, survivors of, of that program, with this more modern incarnation of eugenics that happened in state prisons. And it's quite remarkable. Two other states have had reparations for survivors of the eugenics era, West Virginia and North Carolina. But this is the first time uh, that a state has offered compensation to uh, to folks who based on forced sterilization in uh, carceral settings, which is something that we know less about, has been less well documented, um, and really, in my mind, is, is fascinating because in some ways this harm remains on ongoing. There are still, we know, millions of people who are incarcerated and facing really similar challenges around informed mm-hmm. consent and bodily autonomy during incarceration. And can you just explain those th- those terms, you know, from by, like informed consent? Like, what does that yeah. really mean in a carceral setting? Exactly. Right? I mean, that's the million dollar question that I probably will spend a decade trying to yeah. answer in some ways. But what's hard is so patients who are incarcerated um, have a right to health care and have a right to make decisions about their health. So just like when you go to the doctor, a doctor is supposed to say, here are the options for what's going on. You know, the, we can give you this pill or this intervention or this surgery. Here are all the options available to you. Here are the risks and benefits of those options. And it's supposed to make sure you understand that. And then you sign an informed consent form. You sign a piece of paper before you have a surgery. Often for patients who were forcibly and coercively sterilized, they did sign that piece of paper. But sometimes that was happening after they were already under anesthesia, having Mm -hmm. a C-section. That's not proper informed consent, right? Um, It was happening in English, but the patient didn't speak English. That's Mm -hmm. not proper informed consent. People were told, you have to have a hysterectomy. There's no other option for you. That's not proper informed consent. There's, of course, another option. There's, you know, you never have to. It's almost never, unless you're actively bleeding, actively dying. Mm -hmm. Is that a a surgery you have to have? Not because you're having heavy periods, right? So in general, patients should have this right, but it's really challenging in a structurally violent environment. We've talked about a doctor who had horrible intent, but even with really excellent providers. This is a challenging area to do informed consent. But the other thing I want to highlight is that all of these procedures happened in in, in hospitals. They didn't happen in the prison themselves. So mm-hmm. there was a provider in the prison who should have also been doing these same steps of these are your options, these are risk and benefits. But there were nurses, doctors, other staff members at community hospitals, at academic medical centers who should have also done that due diligence. And there was a failure there too. Mm-hmm. Um, Kayla, let's bring you in here. You've been, this reporting that you've done relies on a bunch of public records requests, a bunch mm-hmm. of interviews. What have you been trying to find out? Like, what, what, what is the core question of this work? Yeah, well, my reporting really focused on the denials. And, um, you know, to date, 355 out of 510 applicants have been denied. Uh, 108 out of 510 have been approved. And so 
I was really looking in my reporting at a particular group of survivors who have applied for reparations and been denied over and over again. And these were people who had a procedure called an endometrial ablation. Mm -hmm. And an ablation is a procedure that is intended to treat abnormal uterine bleeding. And um, in the process, it destroys the uterine lining. So it pregnancy after is unlikely. And all doctors who I interviewed for this story, I talked to five different doctors who all said, you know, we would absolutely never perform this procedure on someone who has any desire for children. That's Hmm. clear in all medical recommendations. It says, do not get pregnant after this. And so the folks who I spoke with, um, they said, you know, we did not give our informed consent for this procedure and or it was not medically necessary. No other options were provided to us. Mm. Um, and so these were kind of the cases that I was looking at in terms of, you know, why why these folks were being denied. And um, in all of these... Because the people are basically, for m- practical purposes, mm-hmm. have been sterilized, mm-hmm. even though this isn't a procedure that like a tubal ligation or like getting your quote unquote tubes tied, that is that is used as permanent contraception, right? Exactly. So medical experts I spoke with said exactly that. So they're in terms of like what qualifies as a you know permanent contraception, um, that would be a tubal procedure or a vasectomy. But then there are all these other procedures they said that really can profoundly impact someone's fertility. And that's where an ablation falls in. And so I think it's important in the context in which this was happening, like tubal ligations were this excluded service, but none of these other procedures were excluded. They didn't have to go through the same levels of authorization. Mm. Um, and so, you know, also the many of the survivors who I interviewed also were treated by Heinrich. Oh, that's interesting. How how many doctors were involved? I mean, I don't want to overfocus on one doctor. Is is you know right? It's not one bad actor. It was a bad system, right? Do you, do you agree with that? Oh, a hundred percent. I think there were a few particular doctors within these institutions that have had many lawsuits against them. Have said horrible things in the press, but again. There were dozens of healthcare providers, more than dozens, at I think, gosh, twelve or twenty, you know, hospitals across the state, um, where these these procedures were performed. So this is not isolated. Yeah, I want to bring on um, another voice of of someone who's experienced this. Um, Sharon Phoenix um, she had her application for the California Forester Involuntary Sterilization Com- Compensation Program rejected, and she joins us here this morning. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you so much. How are you? Hey, doing well, doing well. Um, why don't you, can you just give us a little bit of the background of how you came to uh, to be making this application? Well, I, I'm, I knew a, a young lady I like to call her a young lady. She's a lawyer. Her <laughs> name is Cynthia. And she was with our program um, coming inside the prison, um, you know, kind of fighting for us. She was she was fighting for us, like, to the very end um, about the different things that were going on inside the prison. However, she wrote, um, she called me and she said, her and Hufla, they called me and said, listen, 
you know, you remember when we came and talked to you about sterilization, and uh, I remember how that made you feel. Is are you up to putting in paperwork because we feel what happened to you should fall under reparations? Mm. And um, so at first I was a little, you know, skeptical about talking about it and thinking about it again because I figured, okay, I am free now and. Mm-hmm. I should just go ahead and live my life, live what I have um, left to do and, and enjoy that, right? And So then I thought, um, after Cynthia said, I'll call you back, you know, and called me back again and, and gave me what it was I said to her. I said, you know, it was so degrading. And to realize, like I was so full of what was going on inside the prison that I didn't really pay attention to the fact that you know, my body had been violated in that way. Mm. I know, I remember how I felt afterwards. And talking about that to her just kind of had me overwhelmed. It's like, you know, to hear that you would never, or to hear a doctor, someone that's supposed to care for you, tell you, you don't have to, uh, you, you're not going to have a kid. You, you know, you have a life sentence. So why, why, mm. why are you working? about uh, having any children, this is a procedure that can help you, but did not tell me anything about the fact that it was going to sterilize me. He just kind of like asked questions. Um, and I think that was his tactic to, to do what he wanted to do. When he looked at my file and said, oh, you're a lifer, you know, you, you're, you're a long-termer, you're not getting out. And then went and proceeded to tell me, how this procedure is is going to be just a procedure to remove. He didn't say it was going to sterilize me. He didn't say that it yeah. was going to, you know, be indefinite. He just said, let's do, let's try this. And it was another doctor that in turn said to me later on, like you, you, you know, the, they tell you about this procedure because uh, you can't have children. Because I'm talking about what well, I'm, I'm trying to get out of prison now. And I really, you know, at some point, want a family, uh, you know, want to marry and want to possibly be with a, a man and, and again mm-hmm. and, and play that out. He was like, you, you do realize what happened. You know, you, you had a ablation solution, and he explained the procedure to me, like the hot boiling liquid and all of that stuff. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. You know, like, I never knew what the procedure was because when I came out of the anesthesia, I remember going into surgery um, and them just telling me I'm going into surgery and it's going to be a small procedure. I'll be able to walk out and it'll be fine. And, um, and then afterwards, I'm sweating and I'm bleeding and I'm, I'm mm. you know, right away it just plunged me into like an emotional state. Yeah. And I... I thought at the time that maybe it was because I was in the free world and I wasn't free, you know, I was the hospital. So I kind of thought like that, but once it continued to happen, I knew something had happened to my body. And so asking other girls, like, you know, did you get this procedure? Did you get this procedure? Talked to some other women and they were like, girl, it happened to me too. I just started sweating in places I've never sweat before. And I'm emotional as all heck. Yeah. And so that that's that was one of the major things that I can remember about that procedure and what it made me feel like. Yeah, um, we're talking about California's program to provide reparations for forced sterilization and why it's fallen short of expectations. We're joined by Sharon Phoenix, who has had her application to the program 
rejected. Sydney Johnson reported with KQED News. Kayla Mihalovich with UC Berkeley School of Journalism's Investigative Reporting Program. And Jennifer James, Associate Professor in the Institute for Health and Aging at the University of California, San Francisco, who's also a member of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. We would like to hear from you. I mean, have you or a loved one experienced a forced sterilization in, in California? Have you applied for compensation? Do you have questions about how this reparations program works? We're, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. I'll know the social things. We're KQED Forum. Um, Kayla, before we go back to Sharon, I wanted to ask you if you've been able to find out what's been on the other side of people applying. Like, Have you been able to get emails or documents from kind of inside the department that's supposed to be making these decisions that show kind of how they're trying to decide who should get reparations and who should not? Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, I've reviewed Sharon's denial letters, some of her denial letters, and in, in one of them and also in some others that I've seen, you know, they say that um, ablations specifically don't qualify as sterilization as it's defined in the le- in the the legislation. And I think what's interesting is that I interviewed people who wrote the legislation. One of them being Cynthia Chandler, um, who's an attorney, and she specifically said, "You know, me and my co-drafters, we." knew that we would not be able to capture all of the ways in which various procedures were being used to intentionally limit people's fertility. And that's why we actually did not intentionally define sterilization in the legislation. We were really trying to keep it as broad as possible. Mm. Mm, that's interesting. Um, Sharon, are you going to keep trying to apply? Or are you at this point, you know, like you were saying, just kind of ready to, to move on? No, I, I am not going to move on. I'm going to continue to fight CDCR um, for all the injustices that they've done because the thing is, it's like at that time, we we understood that we had rights, but our rights were never um, adhered to. And the, 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 the injustice is that you mutilated my body without telling me. You There was options. You didn't. You didn't give me those options, and the coercion. It was something that's done all the time. Um, women that when we go through those type of things, we only have each other to talk to about. And when the, and, and when you are dealing with healthcare, medical is supposed to be a place that you can confidentially get the help that you need. It's almost like social services. They're supposed to protect your body. They go to school to learn to do those things and to make you, you know, just knowingly, mm-hmm. um, just to let you knowingly, it, it's awful. It's awful to think that that's okay. And so, you know, if you're able, if you you're, you just can't pick the, the few that you decide um, deserve this, all of us that you did the injustice to deserve it. And so I will continue to fight so that I can make sure that, anyone else that was done in the same manner that I was get the, the, the reparations that's, that they deserve. I don't, it's not so much about the funds. It's about the thought that when I go back to, um, of course, I have a child, mm-hmm. and my son is 39 years old. Mm-hmm. He's doing well, and, mm-hmm. and I would have loved to have had you know, the chance 
Mm -hmm. um, to, to maybe have another one. I mean, that was, I had my child when I was young, 18 years old. And so, of course, I'm 60 years old on November. I'll be 61 mm -hmm. in November. My grandmother had children up until her 60s. So I know it's in my genes. And so I, there's no reason if I wanted to, that's something that you took away from me. There's so many things that I'm experiencing out here. And one of those things could have been, I mean, only God knows how old you can be to, to conceive. And so with that being said, I think that I cannot give up on those people that I know deserve it like I do, and I cannot give up on making, you know, helping society be aware and be mindful yeah. that DC can't just do what they want to do these days. And back then, that was the practice. Today, it's a new practice, yeah. and we should make sure that they never are able to do it to anyone else. Sharon Phoenix, thank you so much for uh, for joining us this morning. Absolutely. Um, Cindy Johnson, before we go to the break, the there is a deadline coming up, right? So before we go to the break, it's December 31st for anyone who needs to, to make this application. They've got to do it by then. We'll talk about more why and if it can be extended, but... That's right, yeah? Yes, December 31st. And there's no intention to extend that. Um, although the state's most recent budget does include some language that could add up to a million dollars for the compensation program. Um, but that would have to happen after new legislation gets passed. Um, and it's also based on a report that's currently being investigated about forced sterilizations at Los Angeles County General Hospital. That's according to the Victim Compensation Board. Um, so depending on the outcome of that investigation, it could trigger some more funding. Um, but what we know right now is that December 31st is still the hard deadline. Okay. We're talking about why California's program to provide reparations for forced sterilization of people inside state prisons has fallen short of expectations. Joined by Sydney Johnson, a KQED News reporter, Jennifer James, Associate Professor in the Institute for Health and Aging at UCSF, and Kayla Mihalovich, who is a UC Berkeley investigative reporting program a student who's got an article on the California Reparations Program up on KQED right now. Earlier, we were joined by two survivors, Sharon Phoenix and Moonlight Pulido. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about why California's program to provide reparations for forced sterilization of people inside state prisons has fallen short 
of Expectations. Joined by Jennifer James, who's a member of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners and has assisted forced sterilization survivors with their applications for reparations. She's an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. KQED's own Sydney Johnson also joins us here in the studio, and Kayla Mihalovich, uh, who is a UC Berkeley School of Journalism investigative reporting uh, program student, and she has uh, an article on KQED right now that is about exactly this topic, um, the applications that have been denied. Earlier, we were joined by two survivors, Sharon Phoenix and Moonlight Polito. Moonlight has received compensation. Sharon uh, has not. Um, let's bring in a caller. We have Judy in Albany. Welcome, Judy. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I, I, this is a horrific subject. Um, were these forced sterilizations only practiced on women or also on men? Yeah. Thank you for that question, Judy. Um, Dr. James? That's a good question. Um, I think we don't have as much information about what happened in the men's prisons. The only reason we know about this in the women's prison is due to tremendous advocacy. I'll shout out Kelly Dillon, who was doing tremendous work documenting what was happening inside in partnership with Justice Now when she was inside and has continued this advocacy for for 20 years. Um, We do know that many men have applied. Many folks from men's prisons have been applied. Most have been denied. CCWP has supported at least one trans woman who reported that she was forcibly sterilized when she was in a men's prison. Um, but I, I don't know details on what was happening in the men's prison. I know that if someone had a vasectomy, that is not a medically necessary procedure. So they should apply to this program, certainly. Um, and I also know that a specific carve out in this bill, which is horrific to think about, is that um, any any form of sterilization or castration that happened as a form of punishment is not included. And that's something that unfortunately still happens in our society. Um, so that is earmarked as, as not being um, eligible for this program. How, how would that be a punishment? Or like, when would that be an acceptable punishment? Historically, for people who ha- were convicted of crimes related to sex abuse, that was something that was done. I think maybe still is done. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's horrific to think about. Um. Kayla, what do what does the reporting from inside this uh, state board, the California Victim Compensation Board, um, who I should also say declined to join our show this morning, a spokesperson mm-hmm. said that any extension of the program deadline would have to be approved by the legislature. That's, that was the, the note we got. Um, but how have they tried to struggle with like sort of medical necessity versus intentional sterilization? Because that does seem... One can imagine, at least, that that would be uh, an area of legitimate disagreement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what I can speak to is kind of specifically the reporting on ablations as a particular procedure and Mm -hmm. how, um, you know, I did – PRA, some of their emails. And I think one public of records pu- so, yes, yeah, public yeah. records act, some of their um, emails. And one of them, I think, is really um, kind of representative of maybe some of the confusion they're having internally. And um, I'll just quote from that email. It said, you know, we went round and round about ablations. We are not doctors. And we always wanted more medical evidence to support our decisions. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, Jen, this is uh, uh, tough too, right? Because you have people, like individuals, who have their own testimony of what has happened in their life. And then you have this kind of medical record that's yeah. sitting there that's sort of created by an institution with all of the backing of, you know, the, the medical science as well as the carceral state behind it. So, like, how, how are you, 
these people supposed to at this state conversation, but how are they supposed to balance those things? Right. It's incredibly hard how they sort of adjudicate what what counts under this program. And I, I so I think there's like sort of a Venn diagram of medical necessity and informed consent. And both things need to happen for this to be an okay thing, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be both a procedure that the patient needs and it has to be that the patient agreed knowingly to this procedure. Determining either or both of those things in the medical record is really hard. I think probably all of us have had experiences, especially now that for most of us, you can like go online and <laughs> go to your portal and look at your medical <laughs> record where you see things that aren't accurate, right? The medical record is not a perfect document. It is not truth. But I think it's sort of being taken as truth. And a, 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 an applicant's testimony um, is weighed, but it's weighed against something that we know was created by people who had some malintent. So I think that it might say in the in the chart that uh, this was medically necessary. It might say in the chart that there was informed consent. How do we know that a patient feels that way? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what's challenging. Most of the procedure, I mean, so a tubal ligation was is not considered medically necessary in this context. Anything that was done for the purpose of birth control, um, if that was the reason it was done, which is always why you do a tubal ligation, it's generally someone is entitled to compensation. That was not considered medically necessary. Everything else tends to be a gray area. If you're having heavy bleeding, it can be appropriate to have a hysterectomy. But most providers I've spoken with would say, well, first you probably offer birth control. First, you, you, know, you talk about all the mm-hmm. options. You determine if a patient might want to have children, not if you think they should or will ever be able to have children. Um, and that's what's missing. And that's what's harder, I think, to to see in just looking at the medical record if those conversations happened and what a patient understood. Mm. You know, Sydney, um, here at KQED, we've had a quite large project on reparations and you know, we've covered the California um, Reparations uh, Commission. We've covered one here in San Francisco. Are there lessons you think we can take from this reparative effort that are, are, are brought or could be applied to those broader um, efforts? Yeah, well, I, I think just zooming out, I mean, like Dr. James said earlier, on the one hand, it's remarkable that these reparations got passed and that the city actually took some, the city, the state, <laughs> excuse me, took some steps to acknowledge this past. Um, but also we've seen that only a fraction of applications have been accepted um, and, and still the number of applications that have been submitted is is less than the number of people that were estimated to potentially qualify for this when, when the law was passed. Mm-hmm. Um, so since California right now is also undergoing a much broader reparations study and, and thinking about um, reparations on a broader scale of racism and, and genocide in our, our state's past, I think that that's an interesting case study. You know, why why were so few applications um, approved? And, and are there things that we can think about for better outreach? Um, you know, this application process requires survivors to or, or descendants of survivors to come forward and share this extremely traumatic story um, that they may not also have all the information about at the, you know, their fingertips. Um, and, and that can be really difficult, even if you do have all the support and, and backing of, you know, advocates. And um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of ways that these applications could fall through the cracks. Yeah. Um, you know, we haven't, we haven't said it quite explicitly. Um, Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about the racial and ethnic dimensions of what we know happened? Like, who were the people who ended up having this done? 
Yeah. I mean, I think folks, I hope folks are familiar with the fact that our criminal legal system broadly is was and is racist by design and that there's a far disproportionate number of black and brown folks who are incarcerated. Um, And so we see that reflected in the numbers of people who we know were sterilized as well. Um, They're predominantly or disproportionately black and Latinx and particularly, you know, black folks in California, I think are what, 6% of our state population and are more than 25% of who's incarcerated. And I think similar numbers in terms of who was um, forcibly sterilized. So um, I think we can't ignore the racist, ableist, classist history of all eugenics programs. And I think that has clearly continued into this as well. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about that continuity, do you think it's a conscious continuity or do you think it's more of eugenics ideas worm their way into American culture and medical science and carceral system? Yeah. And so even when the specific component, like the specific eugenics ideas got pulled out, a lot of the, the other stuff stayed behind, the remnants that stayed behind. Exactly. I, I mean, I think it's both. I, I think that most, very few people these days, I think, proudly say, I am a eugenicist, as they did in like the 1920s, right? Yeah. That's not a label people take on. But the, those logics have never left so many of our institutions. And I'll note, you know, this came to light in 2013. We often focus on people who were forcibly sterilized, like 2005 to 2012, 2013. Um, it hasn't stopped in, in California. Tubal ligations have continued in our prisons and jails since this came to light, even since additional laws were passed. And I mean, folks might remember in 2020, Don Wooten came forward about forced hysterectomies happening at Irwin Detention Center in Georgia. Just last year in West Virginia, lawmakers proposed a bill to offer lesser sentences to uh, to people convicted of drug crimes who uh, agreed to be sterilized. And one of the legislators, I mean, he literally used the language of like, you have to cut off the head of the snake or you'll never solve the problem. Like, oh my God. that is eugenics, right? Yeah. So even even if people don't see themselves that way, I think we can't ignore that part of why we're okay sort of locking people in cages, taking away their ability to have children, taking away their ability to raise the children they have is because we're very comfortable as a society with eugenic ideas of family creation and and who's deserving of that privilege of a privilege is how we think of it of having children. Can I, uh, I flip to the other side or sort of what might happen if we stop people from getting these particular kinds of procedures done. Is there some worry that people who do want to have, you know, permanent mm-hmm. contraception, who who do want to take control of their health care in that particular way will end up being prevented from doing it? Like, are you- Absolutely. I worry about that greatly. I think at the time the law passed in 2014, that further clarified tubal ligation shouldn't happen, put additional uh, precautions or procedures in place for sterilizing procedures. Um, many groups, I think ACOG, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, spoke out and said, this is limiting patient autonomy. Hmm. It's very valid to say, I'm having a C-section. That's a great time to have a tubal ligation. I've wanted this for years. Um, so it, I think it's really, really hard. We shouldn't be making... The way to protect patients, to me, isn't to limit their autonomy. It's not to limit their decision making. Um, But the state has also, on the other hand, proven it can't be trusted to counsel patients through these decisions. And so most of the clinicians who are sort of very adamantly pro-reproductive rights and autonomy that I've spoken with have said, I'd rather someone didn't get this procedure who wants it and could theoretically get it later than someone gets it now and it's irreversible forever. Mm. Um, And and that's, that's really hard to weigh. Yeah. You know, Kayla, as you've been investigating this program and what's been happening with people's different applications, um, you 
might have some interesting insight into what kind of transparency is important for um, these kinds of reparative procedures. Like what 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 would you want to know that you haven't been able to find out, you know, that should be yeah. part of, you know, reparations bills going forward? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people want to know which procedures the board is and is not approving for mm-hmm. reparations. That still is not clear. And mm-hmm. I still have not been able to figure that out aside from just talking to different survivors and mm-hmm. kind of noticing the trends. Um, and as it was, you know, I had to, um, through a Public Records Act request, I had to request their policy and procedures guidelines. Mm-hmm. And those should really be be, you know, available. Like when I showed them to a lawyer, you know, he said these should really be on their website. They should really be, you know, forward facing for everyone to to understand how they're evaluating things. Yeah. I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me. Like, why wouldn't you put the criteria rather than have people have to work through it on their own? I I just agree so wholeheartedly. And uh, folks, there's a coalition of folks who've been supporting survivors and applying who've been meeting regularly with the Victims' Compensation Board, which is wonderful that they've been doing that. But it's really, I think, as as Sharon said, it's really hard to encourage someone to apply. They go through that, the reliving the trauma, applying to get a letter that says, no, actually, sorry, you weren't harmed in this way. It'd be great if you knew ahead of time and you weren't sort of putting people in the position of it feels like you're sort of setting someone up for failure when you don't have all the information of of how these decisions are being made. I I actually spoke to multiple people who had that experience, and I think it's worth pointing out that many people who are applying for this and and also getting rejected are currently incarcerated. You know, they're filling out these applications from prison. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is a risk, right? I mean, that's something I think is important to point out is that like prison mail is not private. You are publicly right. essentially sharing information about you and your health and your body mm-hmm. and opening yourself up to potential retaliation by sort of outing the institution where you currently live mm-hmm. as doing harm to you. Yeah. That's a scary prospect to take on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is there some hope, Sidney Johnson, that, that this will be extended by the legislature? Like, is there some plan that there we could gather a larger number of people who've gone through this? Um, well, I know there's certainly hope from some of the people that I've spoken to whose applications were rejected. You know, mm-hmm. they, they said that they're um, planning to apply again. Um, but aside from that additional million-dollar funding that I, I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. um, as far as what I've been told by the Victim Compensation Board, there it, there isn't much in the way of, of another Administrative extension. relief. Yeah. They can't yeah. just extend it on their own, right? No, they can't, unfortunately. And just to add context to that, that funding piece, I think what's important is, so this program only applies to people who are forced or coercively sterilized in state institutions. So you mentioned what happened at L.A. County. Um, we know in the 70s and 80s that hundreds of people were forcibly sterilized at a county institution. They weren't eligible for this program. So I think there's hope that there'll be an additional program for all the survivors who may have been sterilized in county-level institutions as well. Um, but I haven't heard similar conversations about extending it specifically for folks in state institutions who might have either been found ineligible or missed the very short two-year window to apply. Yeah. A um, couple of uh, thank yous for you, uh, <laughs> Jennifer James. Jen uh, on Discord, different Jen says, thank you for doing the show. The atrocities that incarcerated women face are awful, particularly as a large number of incarcerated women have already experienced trauma mm. and abuse 
And Roberto writes, uh, many thanks to Dr. James for documenting and elevating the awareness around this latest injustice in the long history of sterilization of poor people, imprisoned people, people of color, and migrants. Part of my work at UCSF is to help researchers build trust in marginalized communities. Many of the students and faculty I speak to are unaware of this long history and are led to believe that mistrust in these impacted communities is based on in ignorance. My question for you out of that, um, Jennifer James, is that we are bringing forth a kind of horrifying history and one that, as you note, has its roots in um, really horrible racial science, uh, quote unquote racial science. And how do you build trust when also delivering what is this kind of horrifying and very real history of, of abuse? Oh, that's there's so many layers to that question. I think discussions of trusts are sometimes one of my my peeves. <laughs> As someone who's who thinks a lot about race and racism in in healthcare, I get asked a lot, how do you how do we help people trust us so they'll participate and in our like, clinical maybe they trials? Should. And I'm like, maybe they shouldn't. Maybe that's not I mean the question yeah. really is how do we become yeah. make our healthcare institutions trustworthy? How do we stop perpetuating harm? And it it brings me this this thought I've been having. So in this conversation, we've been referring to this as a reparations program. It's not actually called a reparations program, it's called a compensation program. I think that's because mm-hmm. people don't always love reparations. It's better. It's, I think it's easier to get things passed if you don't use that word. But I've had this question as someone who initially called it a reparations program of, is this, can we call it reparations if there's not a reckoning, if there's not true repair happening, if folks are still, because ex- I think, you know, sterilizations is one small piece of people having medically negligent care, of people having really hard times making healthcare decisions in carceral contexts. None of that has changed. So I, you know, I think my lessons, I think, from this are that, you know, you you should be your right to sometimes not trust, your right to Hmm. approach things with skepticism, your right to try to get second opinions, to ask for more information, to make sure someone reviews Hmm. an informed consent with you very carefully. Don't just sign a piece of paper and trust that someone's doing something. And that shouldn't be a burden we put on patients. But until the system becomes one that's trustworthy, we kind of have to. We've been talking about why California's program to provide compensation for forced sterilization has fallen short of expectations with UCSF's Jennifer James, KQED's Sydney Johnson, uh, Kayla Mihalovich, who has a deep report on this California program on forced sterilization compensation up on KQED right now. And earlier we were joined by two survivors, Sharon Phoenix and Moonlight Polito. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for the next hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.